You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. For a Christian that works in science, does it ever lead to a personal crisis of faith, to ethical challenges? Is there peer pressure in the scientific community on Christians from their non-Christian colleagues? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's time to begin a series, The Scientific Vocation. Dr. Paul Edmund joins us. Today we'll talk about astrophysics. He has a Ph.D. in astrophysics from the University of Minnesota. He helps run the Canon Supercomputer at Harvard University. And he's Congregational President of First Lutheran in Boston and a member of the Board of Regents for Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Dr. Edmund, welcome back. Glad to be here, Todd. Generally speaking, what is the vocation of a scientist regardless of their field? The vocation of scientists is to study the natural world that God has made such that we can understand it and better use the tools that God has given us to the glory of God, basically understand the work he has put in front of us and then use it for our neighbor. So the point of being a scientist is for that purpose. It's mainly service of God, praise of God, and service of neighbor. What can you tell us about your profession? I would be considered what you would consider a support scientist. So my formal title is ITC, which stands for Institute for Theory and Computational Research Facilitator. What does that mean, research facilitator? What it means is that I help people do their research on the cluster. So my job as a support scientist is to take what other people are trying to do and help them use the tool that is the cluster. So normally when you have like a telescope or major telescope, you have a scientists that go along with a telescope that understand that telescope, how it works, how all the different tools work for it, how it behaves in terms of the flaws with it, the things that work well, things that don't work well. And those scientists then help other scientists use that telescope to do their science. So that's part of my role as a Canon supercomputer is to help scientists up at the Center for Astrophysics which is the astronomy department at Harvard, to use the cluster and to get their work done in terms of doing simulations on the cluster. Why did you go into science in general and into your discipline in particular? Commonly seen it that little kids have three different phases they go through. I've never seen a little kid that doesn't go through one of these phases. Being interested in dinosaurs, being interested in large machinery, and being interested in space. I just happened to get stuck on the last one and be interested in space. Growing up, I was very interested in space, very interested in astronomy. I actually wanted to be an astronaut for a long time. And then I grew up, and you can't see me because I'm on the radio, but if you ever meet me in person, I'm a very tall guy. I'm 6'4". Well, at the time, and I don't know if this is still the case, but at the time that I was coming to the point where I could actually apply to be in the astronaut program, I was too tall. The height limit for the astronaut program was actually 6'3", so I'm an inch too tall for that. But in order to become an astronaut, you have to actually go through one of two routes. 
One is that you go to the military. I decided not to go that route. The other option is the civilian route, where you go and you get a PhD in a certain field, do work in that field, and then you apply to be a astronaut and go through the rigorous training system. I decided to go into the field of astronomy because I had a passion for it since I was young. I turned out when I took physics in high school as a senior, I was proved that I was very gifted at doing physics. And so I just was a natural path into doing astronomy and astrophysics as I went through that. Eventually, I got done with my PhD at University of Minnesota, and I was looking for what to do next. I was interested in being faculty because I love teaching and I love doing research. I don't like competing for grants, which is what faculty mainly spend a lot of their time doing. So I was looking for more of a support scientist role or a role where I could just get paid to do my job of doing research and kind of doing the things I love to do. As I was doing a postdoc up in Canada for about a year and a half, the job at Harvard came free and it lined up very well with my own interests, which was in computation and in astronomy and acting as liaison between Center for Astrophysics and Research Computing, which runs the supercomputer. And since I fell in very naturally to that sort of role, applied for a job, they hired me and I've been with Harvard for the last decade. Has the study of science ever caused a personal crisis in your Christian faith? Yes. I think of two times where this has happened, both very similar circumstances. Actually, both of these happened at Harvard. I was in an astronomy lecture attending one of the weekly colloquia there. I was listening to the presenter talk about the Big Bang Theory, talk about cosmology, and all of it at that moment made perfect and logical sense. And being a scientist and being the guy I am, I tend to like things that make logical sense. They all fit together very nicely. And here, this man had just described the entirety of the life and everything in it in a very logical fashion that's like, oh, yeah, this all makes sense. This all follows from one piece to another piece. Why the heck do I believe in Christianity anyway? Why do I even believe in Christianity? Why is this even a thing I care about? Wasn't it better just to become a secularist and not have to go through the rigmarole of being a Christian? It was at that point that I had that crisis of faith. And like I said, I've had this happen to me twice. The place I've always gone to when that happens, and it's a very weird feeling when you've been a Christian your entire life and suddenly, in a blink of an eye, everything's been undermined. Your entire basis of faith has been undermined just in a flash. The place I went to was the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because I couldn't do anything with like a six-day creation or anything related to any other part of Scripture being true, because all of that had been undermined for me. So it was more of the reality of the fact that, no, Jesus Christ is actually literally risen from the dead. His grave is empty. This is a historical fact that we can attest to, and I can look to and say, this is actually a thing that happened. Because he did resurrect himself from the dead, he is raised from the dead, that means that he is God. Because that is what St. Paul says in Romans and describes who Jesus Christ is. Because he's God, we then have to pay attention to his word which is the word of God. And then because his word is infallible, because he is God, therefore, whatever is in scripture, even if my mind at that moment cannot grasp how it comports with reality, yet still it must be true because Jesus Christ said it was true and it is true. So that's how I basically got bootstrapped back into basically being in faith was that falling back on what St. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians saying, what is the foundation of faith? It is the resurrection and the reality of that resurrection. It's part one of our series, The Scientific Vocation, with astrophysicist Dr. Paul Edmond. I'm Todd Wilkin, your link to Issues Etc. Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas will host an information session Wednesday morning at 9 on November 15th for those interested in learning about the school's preschool, 
pre-kindergarten and K-12 through classical education offerings. The information will include a campus tour, a presentation from the school headmaster, and more. The event is free. Registration is encouraged. Learn more at flsplano.org, Faith Lutheran School, Plano, Texas, flsplano.org. When we come back, has Dr. Edmund had an opportunity to share his faith in the course of his vocation? Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. The Biblical Worldview Conference is Saturday, November 4th in Chicago. This year's theme is, For Such a Time as This, Discernment, Boldness, and Compassion. Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will be speaking on gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and sharing Christ in a woke culture. For more information, visit worldviewchicago.org. The Biblical Worldview Conference, November 4th in Chicago, worldviewchicago.org. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel, more than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 7.45 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation for the people of God. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're beginning a series on the scientific vocation, talking with Dr. Paul Edmund. He helps run the Canon Supercomputer at Harvard University. In about 10 minutes, we'll discuss the expulsion of the Canaanites with Dr. Tom Egger of Concordia Seminary. Dr. Edmund, have you ever had an opportunity to share your faith in the course of your vocation? Yes. We have an internal chat program called Slack that I use to meet with all my coworkers. We actually work remotely here. The data center that we service is on the other side of the state from here. So all our stuff is remote. And so we have a chat program that we use for talking with each other. And several of my colleagues are actually interested in theology. One of my colleagues is a lady who's a liberal 
Muslim, and she loves talking about theology. And so I've had opportunities actually to engage with her and thereby the rest of the group by bringing up theology in those discussions. One thing that happened recently was that I was reading up on Sam Bankman Freed, who people may be aware of as being sued by the federal government for misappropriations due to his a trading firm called FTX. Well, he ends up being something I wasn't really aware of. He's a effective altruist, which I'd never heard of before as a belief system, but it's something that's put together by Peter Singer. And I was like, what is this thing? They have all sorts of weird beliefs as to what it is, but this effective altruism thing piqued my interest. I shared the article I was reading on the internal chat saying, this is really interesting because this guy believes that if the world ends, they can take like, you know, a select group of like 50 people, the smartest people in the world, and to heck with the rest of reality, to heck with everybody else, we'll save the 50 most intelligent people, and that will save the human race. And I basically just made the comments like, well, isn't this just original sin? You can see the greed here inherent in this. And people, when I brought up the term original sin and that people were basically evil as a reflection of this effective altruism, which is basically evil, they were like, wait, people are basically evil. And they gave me a chance to talk more about original sin. I even quoted from the Augsburg Confession and Apology Augsburg Confession and dropped basically links to bookofconcord.org on our chat. I don't know how many people actually read that, but it gave me a chance to really digest and talk more about what I believed about original sin, what I believed about theology, and gave a chance for people to basically engage with that and become a bit uncomfortable. It was an interesting conversation because several of my coworkers were like, I don't know about that, but they were fair and they were fair-minded about the application. So I was just simply stating what I believed, not being confrontational about it. Do you ever feel any peer pressure from your non-Christian colleagues? Not particularly. Our group tends to be very much driven by results and also driven about collegiality. I don't generally feel much peer pressure from them. I do feel a bit more from the administration at Harvard. They require you to take Title IX training every single year as part of being a staff member of the university. Recently, Title IX training was changed to start dealing with transgender issues. And they had a section there dealing with hey, like you should not misgender somebody and basically had a thing, you had to go through that. The Title IX training was online. It was basically a thing you just kind of read through and you kind of checked boxes through. And at the end, they actually had a comment at the end saying, hey, do you have feedback about this? And I, I basically wrote very bluntly in there saying, look, as a confessional Lutheran and as a Christian, I can't go along with this sort of thing in terms of misgendering somebody in terms of any of that sort of stuff. I can't do that by good conscience. And I have a good ground for this in terms of my own religious convictions and First Amendment stuff. So that's about the only pressure I felt from the administration to that. Harvard tends to take a very like loose hands respect to this. You hear people taking a bunch of diversity training and what have you throughout the country. Harvard doesn't really so much do that other than the Title IX training, which are required you by federal law to take. So that training you just take and you just kind of check a bunch of boxes through that. And that's basically the only pressure I've ever felt in my work time at Harvard. What ethical challenges have you faced in your discipline? Probably the most interesting ethical challenge is what's going on in the supercomputer. So the supercomputer that we have doesn't just serve the astronomers. It serves a wide variety of people from across the different disciplines that exist here at Harvard. And that includes the stem cell research center that exists here at Harvard as well. And we don't know what they're doing. I don't know what research they're doing on the cluster in terms of any ethical things, but you have things like AI, you have things people researching stem cells, which could be from aborted infants. I don't know. 
But there's a bunch of things that while I provide the tool that's being used for the research, I'm not actually doing the research. Still, research is being done on the, on the cluster that could have questionable ethical considerations that I guess the question I have is that as a Christian, it would be my obligation to basically sabotage the cluster in order to stop it from doing that. I don't think that's probably the case, but it is something that I've thought about from time to time as I've seen things like that research that person is doing a little bit dodgy. Should I really be participating in supporting this person and doing that by the proxy of me actually helping to run the cluster? Usually within astronomy, ethical concerns don't really come out of it, but when you start dealing with human subjects or with things that are in the social sciences, it starts becoming more and more complex. How do you respond to someone who says that Christianity is incompatible with science? I would say that that person is probably undereducated as to the role that Christianity has played within science since its foundation, essentially. It is Christianity that gives the underpinnings to how science works. I definitely recommend everybody read the CTC report on In Christ All, in All Things Hold Together, which is written primarily by Angus Manoj, who has been a guest previously on your show. He does a fabulous job of walking through how science is underpinned by Christianity and how Christianity and science really can work together in a very fabulous way. So it's really not something that people need to kind of throw out there as a false statement. It's not the case that Christians can't be scientists. They certainly can be. Now, the challenge is to be sure, especially if you go into the fields like evolutionary biology or you go into like cosmology or astronomy, where you're making a lot of assumptions and a lot of things that you're taught in that field will contradict your faith. For instance, like in astronomy, you have the universe, which according to all measurements that we can do is 14 billion years old. Yet very clearly in scripture, the universe is only 6,000 to 10,000 years old. The universe, according to science, it takes like 14 billion years to get to its current state. In scripture, it takes six days. That's a big difference in terms of dealing and grappling with how you could square that circle in terms of how you make those things kind of work together. You went to biology, you're going to run into some of the same stuff in terms of having to grapple with that. That's really where your, your consciousness is going to come in. And you have to then reconcile your faith with what you're seeing from the science and what you're being taught in science. And this is where being active and participating in your local congregation is really key. Because if you're divorced from the Word of God through this entire process, you're just going to be swept up by the world and you'll end up being compromised by it. But if you're connected to a good parish, like I was fortunate to be both in Seattle where I grew up, but then also in Minneapolis at University Lutheran Chapel, that really helped me ground my faith as I was going through this training process of becoming a scientist. How has your specific training helped you in your local parish and church? Well, it's helped quite a bit. As an astronomer, they teach you to think at scale. So one of the tricks that they teach you is that you have to think about everything from the smallest thing in the universe, like an electron, all the way up to the entire universe. And yet they hold all of that in your head at once. And that's part of why they train you as an astronomer, because as an astronomer, you have to consider both the literalist things in the universe and the largest things in the universe, because they both impact each other. And thinking about those timescales, thinking about those sizes and everything is really helpful for being able to think strategically about how things are to be put together and also connecting that to the tactical stuff. So it's been really handy for like, I'm president of my congregation. That sort of thinking has been really useful for my work as the president of the congregation in terms of guiding the congregation in terms of its strategic goals and in terms of its tactics. 
more widely, my training being in academia has really helped me when I became a regent at the seminary. I'm the chair of the academic committee, meaning that we deal with all the faculty at Concordia Seminary and deal with different projects that they're working on and making sure that the curriculum is squared away with our Lutheran confessions. And since I'm trained in academia, I now understand how our professors think and act. Because for those of you who have not ever read things like Concordia Journal or any academic papers, academic papers are written in a different way than you would necessarily write to a popular audience or write necessarily or do something from the pulpit because academics think and operate in a slightly different manner. And so since I understand how they're operating, I can then interpret what they're trying to accomplish. They're like, no, this person is not doing something suspect. They're just doing X, Y, Z in order to make sure that we get this argument out here or trying to be able to vet different faculty positions at the seminary. I can look at their credentials and say, okay, this person is actually a legit good person who actually is really competent at a job as opposed to somebody else is like, no, that person probably needs a bit more time to develop as a professor. So it's been very valuable in those respects. I also occasionally get asked to come out and give talks at various different congregations about creation versus evolution, about the vocation of the scientist, about science versus faith, and any of those other concerns. I've done that from time to time, which has been a great pleasure to be able to go out to various churches in the Synod and be able to see different people and engage with them and talk about various different parts of the world and of science and how science and faith impact each other. How has your Christian faith informed your vocation? Well, it's informed it as to why I do what I do, which is to serve my neighbor and to love God through seeing his creation and understanding it. What I do is a lot of fun, even though a lot of it tends to be drudgery at times. I could be commented as a glorified IT guy, essentially. I have a PhD, but I'm doing a bunch of IT work. But because I enjoy what I do and the people I work with are great and outstanding and they're doing very important work, my own faith helps inform how I serve my neighbor and how I love them, whether it be through helping do favors on the cluster so that people can get their research done, or saying no to people and saying, no, I'm going to be more strict with you because I understand that because God is strict with me, I need to be strict with you for your own good because I understand how God is strict with me as well. So my entire faith feeds and flows through everything I do in terms of how I serve my neighbor through helping to run the cluster and glorifying God through understanding the wonderful creation he has made. Why should a Lutheran consider a scientific vocation? Well, mainly because we need more Lutherans in scientific vocations. It's circular to be sure in that respect, but it's more Lutherans and more Christians in general in the scientific disciplines will help disabuse people of the idea that, no, I have to be like an atheist or somebody who checks my face at the door when I go and do science. And that's very much not the case. I know that certainly within my own group, I live very openly as a Christian. I mentioned church a lot within my own chat. I make it very intentional time to potentially invite different people at my own work to church uh, for various different events that we do at First Lutheran. And doing more of that, having more Christians in there helps to basically bolster everybody who's there who is a Christian, but secretly or less vocal than, say, you or I may be. Uh, by being there, it's a, there's a collective force that exists there. Also, it's great to just understand how God's world works. It's a great way of glorifying God. God designed this entire creation for us to enjoy. And part of that enjoyment and part of the praise we give to him is basically going to our dear Father in heaven and saying, look, Dad, I discovered X, Y, Z. And he then looks down at us and with pleasure and says, yes, you discovered that good work for you. That is why I created your creation for. So 
taking the creation that we see around it, understanding its underpinnings is a great and godly work because it does help our neighbor at the end of the day. And it really helps us to glorify God as to the very complex and very impressive creation he has made. Dr. Paul Edmund has a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Minnesota. He helps run the Canon supercomputer at Harvard University. He's congregational president of First Lutheran Church in Boston and a member of the Board of Regents for Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Dr. Edmund, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Dr. Tom Egger, president of Concordia Seminary, joins us next. We're going to talk about the expulsion of the Canaanites, an account that a lot of people have a problem with. The church's music from the second century. Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love The sixth century. The twelfth century. The 16th century. The 21st century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Solid, serious, substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. Interest Time is a magazine that Lutheran Church Extension Fund publishes to inform and educate readers on what God's people are accomplishing through His blessings. You'll find stories about congregations, schools, and organizations within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that are sharing the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Get your free copy today at interesttime.org slash subscribe. Concordia University Chicago invites all high school students to attend the annual Careers for Christ weekend in person on our beautiful campus in River Forest. Careers for Christ is November 3rd through the 5th. You'll have the opportunity to learn about professional church vocations while having fun with CUC staff, faculty, and students. For more information, visit cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C. That is cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C.